Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 440 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, the third in a series on the theme How I Write, Royal Literary Fund writers discuss the mysterious mechanism by which stories, plays and poems are born, taking in everything from the arrival of the idea and the slog of the drafting process to the joys of editing. Plotting or pantsing. Inspiration or perspiration. Despite storytelling being at the heart of human culture, the question of how literary works are created remains a mystery. In this episode, exploring the theme, How I Write, we hear from Royal Literary Fund Fellows about their creative process. The puzzle of where ideas come from remains one of writing's greatest mysteries. For Nigel Cliff, it starts with a physical response. It usually starts with a hot flush the shiver of recognition that I've found a real story and one I think I can tell. It has to have strong characters caught up in a dramatic situation at a turning point in history. It has to have a sense of danger for the character and for me. And since I like writing about the broad comedy of life, the more improbable the better. If I've chosen well, I dig away until hopefully I've unearthed the bones of a thesis then I read around to put flesh on them. This all goes into the pot and comes out as a 50-page proposal. Of course, a non-fiction proposal isn't at all a snapshot of the final book. It's a genre unto itself with its own structure and rules. There are people who enjoy a perfectly fruitful career by being better at writing proposals than books, like screenwriters who only do rewrites. Then there's a year of research, where I usually get carried away and go well off-piste, and a year of writing. I'd love to paint a pretty picture of my process, but I find I have to get my hands well and truly dirty to get anywhere. I tend to throw down lumps of half-digested material like wet clay and gradually massage them into shape. For me, writing and editing are really kind of the same thing. It's in the editing that your take on the story and your tone properly emerge. I think that's one of the biggest differences between fiction and and non-fiction. In fiction, the tone tends to come first. Deepo Agboluadji finds questions can often contain the makings of a new play. I'm more of an inspiration person than a perspiration person. I always start with a what-if prompt. I think I'm very much interested in creating worlds before thinking of the characters that inhabit them. So the question would be, for instance, what if a character, a man decided that, believed, sorry, that he was the son of God and came to Britain to lead the people of Britain into a a, a second coming. Or, for instance, what would happen if a bunch of cleaners decide to overthrow the British government and institute a blackocracy? And so it's from around those situations that I begin to look for the kind of characters that would fit in the story. And then the characters begin to influence the shape of the story. I'm very much um, always interested in seeing what happens when a character overreaches, as the case may be, overreaches his uh, target, has this target that is almost impossible to achieve. 
but nevertheless sets on a journey. And that sort of creates interesting dilemmas and situations and setups. And that's what keeps me going through the writing process. Once an idea has landed, there's the issue of how to get it onto the page. Doug Johnston swears by planning. Well, quite a long time now. I've written a book a year, basically, on top of whatever else I'm doing. And that process is about suits me actually and it's weird because I talk to quite often literary writers who throw their hands up in horror you can write one book a whole one book a year but then you talk to some crime writers who are bashing out two or genre writers very often can be bashing out two books a year three books a year sometimes more horror sci-fi stuff like that but one seems to suit me quite nicely actually I have a sort of period of a couple of months two or three months where I will be planning which is quite a grand word for what it really is it's just I tend to write sort of stream of consciousness notes starting very very loosely at the start with a kind of central idea maybe a central character and a setting things that are kind of influencing what I'm thinking about at the time and so I'll just write I mean, these about a few hundred words or a thousand words a day and I actually don't even go back and read some of these or I flick through them and have a little see what see what resonates I'll do that for a couple of months maybe as the process goes on things tend to get just sort of crystallise a little bit so and by the end of that process, I'll have not quite a scene by scene, but I'll have a pretty good idea of the start and the ending of the book and maybe a great area in the middle. And it's not like a formal treatment or anything like that, but I'll have like a list of key scenes with bits in between things like quite often it can just be uh, I need a scene with this character here because they haven't been in it for a while or, you know, something needs to happen here or stuff like that. And there'll be little character studies. I've done the main characters. I'll have character studies like a page or a couple of pages about what they like and what they don't like, what they carry in their pockets, what's in their handbag, all that sort of stuff that you learn in creative writing class, which does actually help a lot. Also, by that point, I'll usually have pictures on the wall of some of the setting and maybe one or two pictures that might represent what the physical characters look like, the one or two central characters. Kernan Jones, meanwhile, takes a long time to think a story out before committing words to the page. I write in my head and I try to write everything that I need and see everything that I need and build everything that I need, research everything I need on my feet, busy, walking, working. There's a point for me that a story then becomes ready and it wants to be written down and it's only then in an ideal situation that I sit down and I write it. I tend to write as if I'm remembering, as if I'm watching. I try and let the characters proceed ahead of me, keep my eye on them. And because in general I'm writing stories that are set in this place that I know very well, intimately, I only have to flick my eyes to one side or the other of the character to see the landscape around them. So I don't really struggle with those descriptions of place or setting a story into a place. That comes really from the grounding of the characters themselves and the process that is waiting until a story is clear before writing it. But other writers find planning can kill ideas. Catherine Chukorska, for example, has to jump straight in. I'm not a plotter. What do they say? They say there are pantsers and plotters and you either write by the seat of your pants or you plot meticulously. And I don't plot meticulously at all. I know the beginning and I know the end and I kind of write to find out how to get there. 
and so I, I think I would be bored if I try and plot everything out meticulously. I get very fed up of it. I might as well not have bothered writing it. So I do change. I, I do change quite a lot because I'm, I'm finding things out. And with historical fiction, I think you only find out what you don't know when you're writing. So I will do a lot of research and then put that to one side and then do the writing really pretty much without looking at the research at all. I have to be there. But then I do find out what I don't know and and have to go back and look things up and do a bit more research as well and keep making discoveries, keep finding things about it. There's also the issue of how research relates to the writing process. For Caroline Moorhead, it is the most pleasurable part of her work, a sort of compensation for the slog of putting words on the page. My writing life is neatly divided in two. The research is what I love, and I know of no greater pleasure than visiting archives with all the sense of anticipation of the riches they may yield. Writing is a chore, an unknown, a time of uncertainty and apprehension. When it can be put off no longer, when every last scrap of possible material has been squeezed out of the research, when every archive has been visited and every possible contact spoken to, then comes the dreary routine of the writing days. It is payback time. I think of it as some kind of athletic challenge for which I have to be healthy, well-slept, unpreoccupied by other things. I dread it. Only routine saves me. I have a small study in my flat. It is here that I keep my files, loose-leaf folders in which the notes taken during some two to three years of research are filed, arranged chronologically or thematically. When the terrible day of writing dawns, I begin to make my way through the material in the files, pulling out what I will need for a first chapter. This may take several weeks, reading, rereading, drawing up a structure and a plan for the book, breaking it up into chapters, deciding what will go where. Then the egg has to be laid. It never gets any easier, book by book. But as I reach the end, I am already imagining the huge pleasure a new topic will bring me and keep me content for two years at a time. For those happy days in libraries and archives, I would do anything, even write a book. Writers who work in several genres often find themselves adopting different approaches, as Lorna Thorpe explains. How I write depends on whether I'm writing poetry or prose. Poetry is a much more responsive in the sense that I'm responding to something. And I say something because it's often quite hard to define what that something is. It often feels like it's, you know, it's at the periphery of your mind. There's a, uh, it might be sparked by an image or a few words might come into my head or I might actually be reading something and I sort of notice that I'm paused while I'm reading. It might be entirely unconnected to what I end up actually writing about, but there's something there that has prodded me in some way, prompted me to want to write something. And with a poem, I, I really need to get that, try and capture that as quickly as possible. 
So it would have to, you know, I have to get whatever I can onto the page as quick as I can because these things are a bit like fireflies, actually. You know, they wink in and out of existence. You're lucky sometimes they come and it's almost there. I mean, obviously there's editing still required, you know, but others take a, a lot of work and could change almost entirely from what you first written down to what you actually end up with. Writing prose is an entirely different thing because whereas I think with poetry I feel as if it's I'm constantly responding to these um, to these like these prompts or these ideas with fiction I you know I, I have the idea and then I've got to work with that it's it's the slog if you like of getting that down and it does often feel like a slog so for that it's bums on seats get yourself to a desk. And to be honest, my favourite part of writing fiction is rewriting. The first draft is, I was going to say hellish, but then, you know, I think I'm not exactly out a deep sea trawler or anything, am I? But it's horrible. I really, the first draft is hard work. But so the actual, for me, the real writing part of it comes in the, the rewriting when you're looking at the structure and the obviously you're back to playing with words, which is probably the thing that I like best. Often it's the rewriting stage at which a project really comes alive. This is the case for Jan Marsh. I write for the sheer pleasure of a blank page or a blank screen and a subject or or half a subject or the hint of a subject to craft into words. That's why I write. One starts, stops starts over sketching phrases, sentences, paragraphs, pages, all in a slightly scattergun manner until the prose begins to flow into its own curves to shape itself in in narrative or argument, description, dialogue, whatever. The words have to be exact and apt and they edge ever closer to what they wish to convey even if that perfection remains always out of reach. I work with dictionary and thesaurus close to hand always. There should always be the right word somewhere that carries the precise meaning and inflection. And if I can't find that word, maybe the meaning is awry. Try again from another angle. A different syntax can yield what what one is after. Now, the prose aims to be both serviceable and pleasing. Whether the subject is dark, colourful or light, the reader should enjoy the brushwork. Enjoy, but almost without noticing. Phrases and sentences must all also have their sounds and rhythm audible to the silent ear in their vowels, consonants, commas, end stops, exclamations, when punctuation is a major part of writing, I think. So there is a melodic line, as it were, with discords and pauses as required, but it aims never to be toneless or or never all on the same level. Reworking can sometimes demand some surprising tactics. Megan Delahunt, for example, adopts a physical approach to restructuring. After I've done a draft, I have to see it visually and walk through it. And so I throw it on the floor 
and then I get scissors and post-it notes and sticky tape and I try and organize it in that way because I don't write in any linear kind of way so I have to try and see the patterns and so I see the patterns on the floor and I can see oh this goes there that goes there and then after I have this very it looks more like a sculpture or some paper sculpture then I go back with the sticky tape and the post-it notes and and then I go back and do another draft so that's a really important part of how I work I have to throw everything on the floor and see it see what the patterns of my subconscious has made and from that then I get the structure of the novel or the story and on the days when the words aren't flowing it's important to have strategies to stop a funk setting in Jeremy Seal takes several approaches to problem solving. In terms of bad days, in terms of problem days where I'm not making any progress, I tend to stubbornly dig in and just keep reworking at it until at least I feel I'm halfway through solving that problem. It's unlikely I will leave the problem intact and walk away from it. What I tend to do is to at least get myself to the point where I've begun to get a glimpse of how I might solve it. And then I'll put it aside and go for a walk and come back in the hope that in the course of that walk I'll explore and extend that idea to the point where when I come home I've progressed it to the point where I can actually put it on the page and I can actually apply it and, and solve the problem. It happens, obviously, fairly regularly that the writing doesn't go as well as, as well as one would hope. But it seems to me that my writing gets better. I get more and more in the groove once I've been writing for a few days. Once I'm in the groove and I've been writing for a few days without breaks, my writing is a lot better. When I come back, I've lost the habit and it takes me a good period of time before I can bludgeon myself back into writing with the sort of ease that I hope to have after a few days of of actually writing. Helena Attlee is also a fan of getting away from the desk. I have learnt over the years that just getting up and leaving it all and going for a walk is not a cop-out and a waste of time because within minutes of the kind of rhythm of your footsteps being set up that whatever it was that you couldn't write starts to come clear and if you can walk somewhere quite isolated and talk to yourself it's great. You don't even have to, you have to keep on saying it and saying it and you memorise it and then you come home and it's just down and you've done it. I've also found or I've recognised recently that when I'm having trouble writing something or finishing something, if I can put myself in a situation, and this is incredibly unfair, where I'm writing against a distraction and so very often what I will do is go to a concert or even go to somebody else's lecture (laughs) and appear to be assiduously writing notes and in fact I'm finishing the article or the chapter or whatever I need to write because that somehow seems to be a better... I don't know why that works because I don't listen to music when I'm working but that works. Meanwhile, Kevin Clancy warns it's important not to expose the process to too much scrutiny. You have to protect yourself as a writer. You have to protect that part of yourself, I think. Finally, it has to be private to you, which is why this is probably the first time I've ever talked about it in any depth. Even when I'm with friends and colleagues who do the same thing as I do, I don't like talking about it. I kind of feel if you 
touch it, the bloom is gone. I have an instinctive fear, perhaps, of, of disturbing the muse. I've realised the older I've got why the muse is such a telling image. It, it is as though a voice uh, emanating from some creature you can't actually see is singing in your ear. It's a highly romantic vision and I don't think of myself consciously like that but I can see where it came from. and It does personify the idea I have of writing. I suspect this is what Keats meant by negative capability. It's the unconscious. It comes from the unconscious. It can only speak to us symbolically. It can't speak to us directly. And learning to make it speak to us at all takes time and effort. For Ian Macmillan, the secret lies in finding the right balance between pragmatism and idealism. For me, writing is a combination of the very, very mystical, which is this getting up early, pummeling your brain, hunting for words, keeping some words on back burner, going out and seeing things, spotting things that are kind of beyond language and you're trying to turn them into language. The mystical like that, but also the very practical of thinking, I've only done that many words today, I need to do some more. So I know that tonight, later on, which is my best time, but after tea tonight, I'll sit down, I'll try and write some more words. I'll probably try and write another 500, and they won't be all that good, but I'll have written them, and then I'll go back and rewrite them. And then tonight, when I go to bed, I'll do the same thing. I'll leave it. I'll leave a line half written, so that tonight it'll marinate again, when I get up in the morning, I force myself to think of something. Because I think if you don't, then it's like doing exercise. Every, every morning I get up and do ridiculous 59-year-old men's exercises, press-ups and stuff, to get me, get me body going. But also if you don't, as a writer, exercise your writing part of your brain every day, then it is going to go slack. And when the going gets tough... Michael Bywater finds it helpful to remember that even some of literature's most famous names had their demons. When Tom Stoppard wrote The Invention of Love, I think probably his finest play, about A.E. Hausman, we did a thing in the National Theatre, sort of interview-type public, whatever they call them, me and Tom. Before we went on, he said, he said it was quite interesting with this one, don't forget, this is the man who's written, you know, Jumpers. He's, he's written Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. He's a great playwright. And here he is. And he said, I thought after worrying for about nine months, I thought, no, to hell with it. I'll just rely on my technique for the first draft. And there's a huge relief that somebody of his stature obviously had the similar insecurities, and it taken him, Lord knows how many great plays, to think, actually... I can do this. That's probably all it takes, but it's a jolly hard one to, to get, and I think professionals have it as badly as people who would like to be professionals. That was an episode of the Writers Aloud podcast produced by writers for the Royal Literary Fund. The writers featured in this episode were Nigel Cliff, Deepo Agboluaji, Doug Johnston, Kernan Jones, Catherine Chikorska, Caroline Moorhead, Lorna Thorpe, Jan Marsh, Megan Delahunt, 
Jeremy Seal Helena Attlee Kevin Clancy Ian McMillan and Michael Bywater You can find out more about these writers and their work on the Royal Literary Fund website. And that concludes episode 440, which was recorded by the Writers Aloud team and produced by Anne Morgan. Coming up in episode 441, Michaela Morgan speaks with Anne Morgan about becoming a reader by accident, writing for reluctant readers, using stories to unlock people, and the importance of not writing down to children. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.